Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Grab your Bibles, everyone, get a copy of God's Word, and you're going to continue to hear me say that every single week, whether we're in person or online, grab your Bible, okay? And I don't, I don't care if you have a digital copy of the Bible, open up that, get your eyes on God's Word. This is super important for us to devote ourselves to His Word, not anyone else's. So, grab a Bible. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And this is where we're going to be today. And looking at just a few verses in John 8. Uh, looking at a specific encounter with Jesus uh, in that text. And uh, this is in, in tangent with, this is continuing our series entitled Like Christ. And if you are just joining us or... Uh, Just hearing about this series, we're doing a series of talks right now, and we're a few weeks in, where we're specifically asking the question, if I'm seeking to become more like Jesus, what am I seeking to become? So as I look at the person of Christ, and I'm seeking to follow Jesus, I'm, I'm saying that I'm a follower of Jesus, then what should my life be looking like? And we're looking specifically at examples of Jesus living out these characteristics And then figuring out how do we live in the same way. What does that look like? And we've talked about humility. We've talked about obedience. We've talked about endurance. And now we're shifting today to talking about being merciful. Being merciful. Showing mercy. And so you might ask right off the bat, well, what is mercy? Or maybe you have a concept in your mind of going, well, I think I know what mercy is. But surprisingly enough... Many people confuse some of the terms like mercy, grace, compassion, and we can't really distinguish between what's the difference, and so we kind of use words to mean things that maybe they don't mean. And so a general way that I, that I like to remember uh, how to define mercy, a simple way, and then I'm going to give you the specific definition, but a simple way to remember that is mercy is compassion in action. So it's the compassion you feel but lived out in action form and it's a follow-through of that and uh, we talked a little bit about that uh, last year the year before when we went through our study in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 where it says blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy and more specifically if we look at a formal definition of mercy mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. And think about that for a minute. No no matter who you are, based in that definition, you currently, right now, have the opportunity to extend mercy to someone. Whether it's your spouse, or your children, or your co-workers, or your friends, we can think of people in our lives who maybe we're prone not to extend mercy to, but we have the opportunity to do so. And so really what we're going to be looking at today is what does it look like to extend mercy 
And how, how do we do that? How can we practice this practically? What does this look like? And that's what we're going to look at in John chapter 8. Now, as we step into this section of John chapter 8, I want you to understand that this is actually a passage of Scripture that at times there's, there's some controversy about simply because some of the really old manuscripts of the Bible don't include this portion. Now, that being said, there are over 1,300 manuscript copies that do include this account. And so there's been debate back and forth about, should this be part or should it not? And I just want to be transparent with you about that. Now, as we read this account in Scripture, what you're going to see is that this narrative fits within the context of Jesus' ministry. It fits within the context of John. And it encourages us to live in such a way that is consistent with what Jesus is calling his disciples to and characteristics of Christ that we see in the rest of his ministry. And so I believe there's value in looking at this text, in reading it with eyes wide open and seeking to understand what is God seeking to teach me through the ministry of Jesus in John chapter 8. And so we're going to pursue that together. I'm going to start in verse 1 of John chapter 8, and I'm going to read all the way through to verse 11, and then we're going to unpack bits and pieces of this and note some observations together. So let's read this, and then we're going to pray that God would use this to glorify Him today. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning He came again to the temple, and all the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground and As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Father, as we look at this text today, I pray that you would challenge us. I pray that you would open our eyes to see and understand how we can embody the same character and the same lifestyle as Jesus himself. Convict us of areas where we aren't doing this, of people that we need to extend mercy to. And Father, may you transform us, making us more like your son today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the first couple of verses here, it really sets the scene. And starting really at verse, chapter 7, verse 53, it, it says, they, they being all the people who were following Jesus, went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And this is something Jesus did often in his ministry as he retreated and went and uh, spent time alone. But in verse 2 it says, early in the morning he came again. So Jesus leaves for a time. He comes back to the temple. And when he comes back, 
It says that all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So you could kind of paint a picture in your head of what's taking place here. That Jesus has been teaching in the temple. And he, he leaves at the end of the day. People go home. He leaves. The next morning early, he comes back to the temple. And all these people come back to hear Jesus teaching. And it was common to see groups of people following Jesus around and listening to the words he had to say and what he was doing. And they, the people were intrigued by this. They were eager to see what, what was going to happen next. And so you have this scene of uh, they're in the temple, probably in the temple courts, um, and, and, and they're listening to Jesus talking. They're, they're, they're listening to his teaching. And so this is, this is where the scene begins. And then the next portion of this is where our antagonists really come into the picture. And it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, recognize here for a minute that the Pharisees and the scribes, these were the religious leaders of this day. So we're not talking about some just random government leaders who were coming to try and test Jesus or trick Jesus. These were the guys who were in charge of upholding the law of Moses, which was held from really the first five books of the Old Testament, called the, the Pentateuch or the Torah. And this outlined for the nation of Israel... God's commands to his people in order to be counted as righteous. These were the standards that were in place. And one of the reasons Jesus rubbed these guys the wrong way is because he really came and presented a different way of fulfilling the law of God and eventually establishes the new covenant through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so here we have these religious leaders who are just annoyed by Jesus' ministry. And they're doing anything they can, as it says in the text, to bring some charge against Jesus. And so here, in this circumstance, they're bringing this woman who's been caught in adultery. And one of the first things that we can see here that, that emphasizes or confirms that they were doing this just to test Jesus is the man is not brought with the woman. They just bring the woman. And... In fact, it's, it's interesting because they highlight the law and they say the law of Moses has commanded us to stone such women. But if you go back and you read, in, uh, first off, in Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulter adulteress shall surely be put to death. In the same way, Deuteronomy 22.22 says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So right, right out of the gate, you see that the religious leaders trying to trick Jesus have even fallen short in their own demands because if they really wanted to stick to the law of Moses, they would not have just brought the woman, but they would have brought both the adulterer and the adulteress. And in observing this further, in an even more of an application way, the first observation I want you to grasp here is that there will always be someone who condemns. No matter what circumstance we encounter, no matter who we claim is the sinful one, there will always be someone who condemns. 
Sometimes the person who condemns is someone even within the church. As you can see, even here, the religious leaders are the one who are condemning. Sometimes that's people outside of the church. Sometimes it is the culture. And regardless of what transpires or what takes place, our temptation to condemn someone is going to be backed by someone. And we can find reason to believe that, to make that the trajectory we're going to follow, because there's always going to be someone who condemns. But the question we have to ask instead is, if I'm seeking to become more like Jesus, what should my response be? Should my response be condemnation towards the person who's wronged me or who has simply committed a wrong that I just see as heinous and unforgivable? And so as we're thinking through this, maybe even you have a circumstance you can think of now where you can identify someone did something wrong and you can immediately think of the person who was first to condemn. And maybe it was you. Or maybe you're struggling right now with that, that feeling of, I just want to condemn this person and that's, that's all the further that I'm going to go. Now, the interesting part about this is when they do come to test Jesus, they kind of they, they pose a dilemma in two specific ways to Jesus. On the one hand... If Jesus responds to these guys and says, yes, stone her, then realistically you could call into question, first of all, Jesus' previous ministry in John chapter 3 where he talks about, I've not come to condemn, I've, I've come to save, I, and I'm, I'm here not to condemn the world, um, but to, to bring salvation, and so they could call into question some of his message. But if you take that a step further, in this season and in this time frame, Rome was very powerful and uh, had, had the say-so to, to uh, convict anyone who sought to bring about legal ramifications or judgment on someone outside of their authority as the governing authorities. So there's kind of two elements there. Then there's a second one that if Jesus says, well, no, you don't stone her. You're not going to do that because I'm not okay with it. Then the religious leaders now have grounds to say, well, he's disobeying the law of Moses. And so from a religious perspective, we, we can convict him and, and bring charge against him in that way. And so as, as we think about those two options and the scenario that Jesus is in, what happens next is intriguing. The later part of Chapter 6, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Because, you know, when you're faced with a dilemma, the first thing you do is play in the dirt. <laughs> I mean, I, it's kind of funny to think about that. And we don't know what Jesus wrote. We don't, we don't have any idea. You can speculate all you want. Some people enjoy doing that. Just understand that Scripture doesn't say what he wrote. So all your speculations are just that. They're speculation. In verse 8, it says... Verse 7, it says, And as they continue to ask him, so Jesus is riding in the dirt with his hand, and they continue to ask him about this scenario. And then all of a sudden, Jesus stands up and says, He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So Jesus is riding in the dirt, and they keep asking him, keep asking him, and so Jesus stands up and he says, any of you who are without sin, you can throw the first stone. And then he goes back to writing in the dirt. 
<laughs> and this is, I, I, I find this really funny. But ultimately, Jesus turns this situation back on his accusers. He doesn't say, don't stone her. And he doesn't say, stone her. Rather, he says, those of you who are without sin, you bring condemnation and judgment on this woman. And so the second observation I want to make this morning as we think about this is that you are just as tainted as those who wrong you. And you could take this a step further and say, we are just as tainted as those who do wrong. And we get in a really bad habit sometimes of condemning those who in our minds have committed sins that are so atrocious that in our own minds we don't see them as able to receive the mercy and grace of God, and therefore, in our own minds, we refuse to extend mercy and grace to them. And the message in Scripture is not that there are some over here who have committed such atrocities that they are condemned forever, but the one atrocity that all have committed is to defame and Profane the name of a most holy, all-sovereign God to where none of us are righteous. None of us are deserving of God's mercy and grace, no matter how good you think you are. And so in the midst of this, Jesus turns that, this very concept back to these religious leaders and essentially says, are any of you so without sin that you can bring death and judgment upon this woman? And a follow-up question to that could very easily be, are any of you able to fully bring about the judgment of God? And the logical question, answer to that question is no. Because Why? Because we're all sinners. And the interesting thing is, who would have been the only person there who was without sin and able to bring condemnation and judgment? It was Jesus. Jesus himself could have answered that question, I am without sin. None of us are less tainted by sin than others. All of us are in, needs of, are in need of God's sovereign grace in order to have confidence for eternity. Every single one. Now, mercy, in this case, being compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Let's see how Jesus extends that further in verse 9. Jesus states this to them. In verse 9 it says, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him, still riding in the dirt. In verse 10, Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The third observation I want to make here as we think about this text and think about it practically is 
Showing mercy is not condoning sin. And oftentimes, we look at a passage like this, or we get a concept in our heads about what it looks like to be merciful to people, and we convince ourselves that if I extend mercy to someone, then I'm saying that what they've done is okay. And that is not at all what extending mercy is. Nowhere in this text does Jesus say to the woman, eh, it's not a big deal. It's, it's, what you did isn't that bad. You know, go, you're fine. I'm not going to condemn you for it. There's, I, I, know, I know these guys have done things way worse than you. Don't sweat it. No, no. Rather, Jesus, in a place where he could punish or harm this woman, shows mercy. And in that, extends something that even the religious leaders of this day were not willing to extend. And in doing so, reveals his heart for people to turn from who they are and sin no more. To walk in newness of life. Just like we read a little bit ago in Romans 6. Should we continue in sin? That grace may abound? By no means. This fits completely and perfectly with what Jesus states here to this woman. I'm not condemning you. But go and sin no more. Don't use this as a get out of jail free card and and, and just go do whatever you want. Again, pursue a life that is living for Christ. And this woman had a front seat to see Jesus work in this way. It was so, so far contrast to what the religious leaders would have said. But it does not mean that Jesus is accepting of what she's doing. And sometimes, maybe that's our concept of mercy, that if I show mercy, I'm going to condone what they're doing. Or maybe it's the other way, and we're expecting someone to be merciful to us, and if they don't condone what I'm doing, then they're not really showing mercy. And neither of those are biblical or accurate. Who is it that is without sin and able to rightly bring condemnation? It's, it's Christ. And Scripture goes further into that. It says, vengeance is mine. God says, I will repay. Don't avenge yourselves. Don't pursue to get even or get right, but rather model Christ and allow God to be the one who brings about vengeance. Allow God to be the one who brings about eternal judgment on people. It's not our job. It's not, it's not our task. Our task is to... Make sure people know that there is life in Christ. And Romans 8 reminds us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once again affirming Jesus living that out in his practical ministry. And that there's freedom in Jesus. So practically speaking in application as we wrap this up, there's three things I want you to to consider, and this, is, this goes to the how do I do this? How do I think about showing mercy? What, what do I do? The first one out of the gate is care before you condemn. And this goes right along with Jesus' own commands to love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our first instinct, any encounter we have with people should be to care before we condemn and 
I'm sorry to say that oftentimes we do the opposite. We condemn people, and then if they earn something from us, now I'll, now I'll care for you. We seek to care before we condemn, especially in circumstances where we don't truly know someone. Stop and actually be intentional with people. Care for their needs. Find out what their struggles are. Find out what they're wrestling with. Care before you condemn. The second practical thing we can do is to live forgiven, not bound. In other words, as Galatians would say, recognize that there is freedom in Christ. Seek to live like Jesus. But don't become so legalistic as the religious leaders were that you are just a condemning machine because people aren't lining up with what you think it should be. Now, I'm not saying in this that you should not abide by Scripture or long that others would do the same. But don't expect, for one, don't expect people who aren't saved to be living a Christian life. If someone is not saved, we should not be surprised when they live worldly. It it shouldn't surprise us. And our one task in that moment is to bring them to a place where they understand what Jesus has done for them. And that, that starts the process of transformation. But the other part of this for living forgiven and not bound is for me to recognize in my own life that I have to set aside the things that are just my pet projects that are nowhere in Scripture. That I'm, I have expectations of my other brothers and sisters in Christ. And that could be anything from how they cut their hair to what clothes they wear on Sunday morning. And so in the midst of thinking about this, we, we need to seek as followers of Jesus to live as people who are forgiven by Christ. We're, uh, we, we don't deserve that. And we're not bound to the law any longer because it was fulfilled in Jesus. And so who we are should not be people who are constantly living in fear, but people who are constantly celebrating the freedom, the resurrection we've experienced in Christ, and the anticipation of the resurrection in the future where we'll be with Christ. That should change our attitude from the rest of the world. The last thing, consider the mercy shown to you in Christ. If you're struggling with showing mercy to someone, then I want you to stop and consider the mercy that's been shown to you in Christ. To stop and think about compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. There are not many other definitions that describe the sinful state of mankind as that. How how far has God gone to show His mercy to us? And then grace extends beyond mercy because grace is giving you what you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. And grace is giving you what you don't. And God has not only given us salvation in Christ and freedom in Christ, but He's promised eternity with Christ in His presence. None of us deserve that. And so the next time we are encountered with someone who has wronged us or who has done wrong, stop and consider the place that you stand in relationship to God when it comes to extending mercy and grace. And allow 
how you show mercy to be the same way that you expect or know that God has already shown it to you. And that's going to be a great starting place for you to consider how do I become a person who is merciful in nature? Now, nothing in Scripture promises that this is going to be easy, church. And it's going to get to your core and you are going to wrestle because it goes against the grain of everything in you to extend mercy, especially to people who have hurt you. And yet, Jesus models this in a profound way. Not to condemn, but to encourage, hey, my desire for you is that you would go and you would sin no more. And we know the rest of the story in John's narrative because Jesus not only encouraged that, but he gave his life so that it was no longer up to human effort to deserve the mercy and grace of God, but is through Christ. Ephesians 2, for you are not saved by works so that no one can boast. This grace of God through faith in Christ that saves us. And there's freedom, there's hope, there's security in that and in that alone. Church, my hope is that we would be coming, we would be becoming more like Jesus, especially in this time. As you have immense opportunities to show mercy, to extend grace, to love your neighbors, to grow together as a family, as an individual, to be transformed, to become more like Christ. May we set out to do that well. Heavenly Father, we give this to you. We trust you and know that you are doing a work in our lives. Father, help us to, to grasp the heaviness of this, but to trust you more fully with our lives in a way that we can... Uh, wrestle with and know the circumstances where we need to extend mercy. God, remind us of your love. Remind us of how you have already done this for us. And allow that to be the primary focus. Allow that to be the motivation by which we live this out and practice this in light of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.